0: Right, I think I'm. My mic is recording.
1: I'm recording.
0: Okay, we're doing we're doing this all ourselves. Happening. This is happening this in a is COVID happening. secure way. <laughs> hey, Maren. Yeah. We correct. are back for a second season.
1: How exciting is this? Season two. All our dreams have come true. Yes.
0: If you were with us for the first season, welcome back. If you're new here, hello. Hi. This is Surprisingly Brilliant, a science history podcast from Seeker. I am Greg
1: Foote. And I'm Marin Hansberger. And this is the podcast that tells the stories of surprising, yet brilliant, you see what we did mm. there, discoveries, ideas, and people.
0: We are kicking off Season 2 with one of your most requested stories.
1: Because during Season 1 we were actually sent in hundreds and hundreds of suggestions by you guys. thank
0: Thank you so, so much. There were countless theories and technologies that you wanted to know the origins of.
1: You sent us the names of people that you feel like have been cut out of history or who you think just aren't talked about enough.
0: Plus there were a whole load of mishaps and misadventures and wonderfully bonkers moments of discovery that you'd heard of and you just wanted to know if they're real or not.
1: We had the best time hearing from you. And so for this season, we have picked 14 stories and spent many, many fascinating days, weeks and months prepping them for your ears.
0: Yeah, now the way that we do this uh, for each episode, just one of us has done the research and then they tell the story to the other who knows
1: nothing about it. And for this episode, that's me. I'm the one who knows nothing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I get to start by telling you all about one of the most requested discoveries and one of the most requested people It's all about the often called Instruction Manual for Life, DNA, uh, which stands for, Maren?
1: Deoxyribonucleic acid, Greg. Nice. Ding, ding. (laughs) Ten points.
0: Uh, Yeah, the strings that our tapestry of life is woven from. Um, So next question, Smarty Pants. Uh, Who first read the instruction manual? Who unwound that string and figured out its structure? I'm
1: loving this poetic metaphor. Okay, so of course we have Watson and Crick, but also Rosalind Franklin.
0: Mm, Spot on. So yes, today we will indeed be telling the story of Rosalind Franklin. Yes. Now, producer Katie and I have spent a long time reading many books and papers and chatting to lots of experts to piece together a very detailed account of what actually went down between Rosalind Franklin, Francis Crick and James Watson and a few other key characters as well. Now, I am, of course, going to tell you as much of that detail as I possibly can in one episode. But there's a lot more to Rosalind Franklin's story and as I hope I will persuade you, the other far less told story is the one we should all be telling.
1: I am so intrigued and I'm so ready to set the record straight in this episode.
0: In fact, this, this is a really important episode, I feel. Um, please do listen right to the end to find out why. As always, I'll be playing in nuggets of gold from research calls that I've had with experts. Uh, let me introduce you to the first.
2: I'm Dr. Patricia Farah. I'm an Emeritus Fellow of Clare College, Cambridge. I recently mm-hmm. wrote, published a lab of one's own science and suffrage in world
0: war one a lab of one's own is a book that is right up our street um it tells the stories of quote extraordinary female scientists doctors and engineers
1: super exciting and of course a play on virginia Woolf's seminal book of room of one's own which is this fantastic feminist (laughs) book. So this is very near and dear to my heart. This is very exciting.
0: Dr. Patricia Farrer is fantastic. I met her when actually doing my major in the history of science at university. Look at you. Um, And she was, in fact, the president of the British Society for the History of Science for four years. Oh, my gosh. So it's so great to have her with us for this episode. Let's start this story then in London in the 1920s when a young Rosalind Franklin is growing up near Notting Hill Gate.
2: She was a very clever girl. She went to St. Paul's Girls' School, so she got a very, very good education. All the people that were there at the time remembered her as being very, very clever, particularly at maths. Uh, she had extremely high standards. She was very demanding on herself.
1: Mm, wow. Yeah, that makes for a, a good scientist, to some extent.
2: And
0: to get more of a sense of her growing personality, I read that one day she gets a B-plus on one of her essays, and she calls a teacher an old pig.
2: Ooh. Yikes. <laughs> she always came first in maths. And also her mother was taught her how to develop photographs. And she absolutely loved doing that. And one of her brothers said in his memoir that as a little girl, she said, oh, it made, made me go all squidgy inside. So she obviously from an early age, she had this double interest in maths and in photography. I love that. I feel like actually I've come across that in so many interesting scientists from
1: history who have this dual interest in like the fundamental nature of things, the math underlying the universe, and also in art. Art, yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it's yeah, so yeah.
0: cool. It's the way that the creative influences yeah. the logical.
1: Well, and, and the fact that math and is versa. creative. And yeah. vice Yeah, 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 big time.
0: All right, let's jump forward 10 years. She is applying for Cambridge University. She wants to study chemistry, physics and maths. But first, she's got to sit the entrance exam, which is tough. And she scores the highest marks.
1: Amazing. Right?
0: For context, this is the latter end of the 1930s. So women are allowed to study, but they don't receive the same degree as men.
1: What? I didn't even know that. I thought that once women were, you know, could gain entrance into university, it was the same.
0: It's
2: bonkers, isn't it?
0: Despite the fact that she's one of the cleverest students.
2: Being at Cambridge in the 1940s, 1950s was extremely difficult.
0: Two reasons why. The first, um, when Rosalind starts there, it's at the start of World War Two. Right, so one morning, it's fall, autumn 1939, the air raid sirens start going off, and drills like this are a daily thing. Cambridge is surrounded by military bases, so it's at risk of being attacked by German bombers. When the alarm sounds, students are supposed to grab their gas masks, run outside, but 19 year old Roslyn, however, stays in her room. All she wants to do is study.
1: Oh my God. I cannot even imagine studying for an extremely difficult STEM degree with that all going on. That's uh, just out of this world.
0: So she studies super hard. She does really well. And eventually she's awarded a research fellowship at Newnham College in the lab of one Ronald George Rayford Norrish, a uh, biochemist who will later receive the Nobel Prize. But this is part of the second reason why life was hard for Rosalind.
2: There were only two women's colleges at Cambridge, so she was very, very much in the minority. Women, particularly in the science faculty, were very strongly discriminated against
0: Discrimination will be a repeated part of this story. God, that's um, so frustrating. Starting with Ronald Norris, who uh, runs the lab that she's been offered the fellowship in.
2: She didn't get on very well with him.
0: That's an understatement, <laughs> right? She actually called him, quote, stupid, bigoted, deceitful, ill-mannered and tyrannical.
1: Good for her. End I'm quote. glad she's outspoken about it at the very least. OK, here's my question, though. Like, why would she even have been given a place in the lab if he was such a horrible man? Like, does he get any say in having a woman in the lab? And is he like, oh, yes, I will just have this person to He abuse. probably just wants
0: the um, person power. God. You know, and if she's really good, he's going to want the best students.
1: But he can just be mean to her because he can.
0: Well, it had quite an impact, actually, um, because... She stopped
2: doing a PhD. She said to her father that she thought it was more important to do war work. Uh, than to get her PhD.
0: Any guesses what she moves on to next?
2: I know a lot of women
1: became nurses.
0: No, not nurses.
1: Okay. Um, I would
0: be so impressed if you got, like, this would have to be a
1: guess. uh, uh, Some kind of x-ray operator?
0: Okay, well, that's clever. (laughs) Kind of. (laughs) So she gets a PhD in coal.
1: I'm sorry, coal? Yes. Yes. As in like the a lump of coal. Yep,
0: yep. Uh, so yeah, Rosalind Franklin moves to London uh, and she works for the British Coal Utilisation Research Association studying the structure of coal.
1: Wait, that's amazing. Yeah. And what are they doing that for?
0: Right, here we go. So she's, she's living in a cellar apartment near the Thames. Uh, she's with her cousin Irene, uh, another friend, and two cats. Oh my gosh
2: crowded apartment. And she did research into graphite and coal, which is now seen as pioneering. And I think it's quite interesting that uh, some of the research she was doing into graphite was very important for developing gas masks. And now with in retrospect, now that we're in this pandemic, you can think of gas masks as being the PPE of World War II. Okay, so we're
1: talking about like filtration devices?
0: Yes and no. So she's working on the uh, porosity of coal. So it's internal structure, essentially, right? And gas masks contain activated charcoal filters to absorb toxins. So yeah, her work indirectly helps improve them. Amazing. Um, but she's more interested in the coal itself. And she figures out that when coal burns, the carbon that's produced forms one of two types and that one of those is much preferred for things like smelting steels. Um, So
1: like base, like almost material size. Yeah, material
0: size. Yeah, (gasps) on coal. Yeah. When the war ends in 1945, she gets a job in Paris with a man called Jacques Mering.
2: That was where she really learned the fine technical skill of becoming an x-ray crystallographer. Aha, so I was on the right track. And
1: honestly, when you think about it, like uncovering the internal, I don't know, molecular or like chemical structure of an element is laying the groundwork, laying the foundation for uncovering these tiny structures that Mm -hmm, we're thinking mm -hmm. about.
0: So Jack Mehring has been doing a lot of x-ray crystallography to study various substances and she learned loads of stuff from him. And yeah, x-ray crystallography is going to be a big, big part of this story. So let me bring in my second
3: expert. My name is Stephen Curry and I'm a Professor of Structural Biology at Imperial College London. I've spent uh, many a year of my career um, applying X-ray crystallography to lots of interesting biological molecules.
0: Stephen told me that when you use normal visible light to look at objects through a microscope, there's a limit to the size of the objects that you can look at or make images of. And to see something smaller, you need to use smaller waves. X-rays.
1: Okay, this is making sense. So you can image something with non-visible light to reveal smaller structures that we can't see with our eyeballs with visible light.
3: Spot on. X-ray crystallography was a way of using x-rays, which is a form of light, and you shine it on a sample and it penetrates through the sample and interacts with the atoms in the sample. And that produces scattering, which you can record on a photographic plate originally.
1: Got it. So it's kind of like this combination of an x-ray like you would get of your skeleton with a microscope, but like almost abstracted?
0: Well, the challenge is to look at that abstracted scatter pattern and then figure out what the atomic structure is inside of that sample that would make that scatter pattern.
1: It's almost like looking at a shadow on the wall, kind of, right? it's
0: like a puzzle, which I kind of love about it. I asked Stephen about Roslyn's work in Paris.
3: That is where she learned to use x-ray diffraction in order to study the properties of coal. Now, coal is one of these substances that is kind of quasi-crystalline. It doesn't form perfect crystals, but there are forms of carbon within coal, like graphite, which do have... Have a regular structure and so one can probe um the sort of inner fine structure of coal so her work was very important in helping to understand those microstructures and it really was quite pioneering
1: i'm not surprised our girl Roz hates getting a b plus she's doing good didn't know any of this though about her no, earlier I, work on coal i have no idea yeah, you yeah. don't you don't think rosalind franklin and think coal <laughs> that's so for
0: sure she built quite a reputation for that work on coal What about her reputation as a person, though? Uh, I'm not sure how much you know of or have heard of Rosalind Franklin's personality.
1: Almost none. I don't know anything about her as a person.
0: I'd heard that she was a hard character. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Right, And we'll get to see why we have that picture of her later. Mm. Um, but Patricia was keen to put the record straight.
2: She had loads of friends. She loved going walking and hiking and cycling. She was very popular. She did lots of sewing. She loved inviting people around to dinner. She was known as a very good cook. So she was a very friendly, outgoing sort of person. And other colleagues who worked with her later found her a marvellous person to work with and also a marvellous person to work for.
1: She sounds great. Remember that for later. Okay.
2: And she was very happy in Paris. She was there for about three years and she didn't experience discrimination. She was treated equally. She learned a lot. Interesting. I'm surprised, but I'll, I take, all right.
0: Clearly a better scenario than the one that she'd left.
1: Right. In Cambridge. Well, yeah, you kind of couldn't get much worse. So
0: in 1950, she gets offered a research grant to return to the UK and to bring her X-ray crystallography skills to the biophysics department of King's College London.
2: And there's a letter that survives to one of her brothers, Colin, saying, I've decided to come back to England, but I think already that this was a terrible mistake. I think I should have stayed in Paris. And then she came back and she went to King's College in London and she was absolutely miserable.
1: I think I should have stayed in Paris. Every person's sentiment ever. (laughs) Whatever you've done, you should probably should have stayed just in Paris.
0: stay in Paris. Yeah, we've all felt that when we've gone to Paris. <laughs> but the pastries—I yeah, mean, so you can't leave that. Can. Anyway, sidetracked by food, story of my life. This is where Rosalind Franklin enters the DNA story, uh, soon meeting James Watson and Francis Crick. But all of that is to come after the break. I'm off to get a tartle pom. Oh, it's time. Welcome back to Surprisingly Brilliant. Rosalind Franklin is soon to join the team at King's College London and begin her work on the structure of DNA. But before she arrives, let me tell you what's been happening at King's in the months before. So here are the cast of characters for this part of the story. The biophysics department is headed up by Professor John Randall. Uh, You've got DNA researcher Maurice Wilkins uh, and graduate student Ray Gosling, uh, (laughs) who I kept reading as Ryan Gosling. That would be
1: so tempting, I know. I can't read it any other way.
0: <laughs> so, uh, Maurice and Ray have built a rig to take X ray scatter images of DNA from the sperm of cuttlefish.
1: OK. Oddly specific.
3: You can make x-rays by having a high-voltage source which accelerates electrons into a copper target and x-rays come off the copper. And you make those go through a fine tube which gives you a fine beam of x-rays. And then you have your sample just at the very end of that tube. And in this case, they used a bent paperclip and they would just wrap strands of DNA around the end of the paperclip. And so you had a little string of DNA that the beam passed through. And then a few centimetres away was a piece of x-ray film that would capture the exposure. And the whole of the apparatus was enclosed, I think sometimes in a box,
0: Morris and Ray knew that they had to keep the DNA sample wet, damp. So uh, when their rig sprung a leak one day, uh, they had to come up with a quick fix.
3: Which involved using a condom in order to provide a watertight environment uh, to control the the humidity so that the sample uh, did not dry out.
1: Love that image of the day in the lab when you're like, oh my God, the water is leaking. What do I have on hand? Not duct tape. <laughs>
0: uh, and a bit of plasticine. Yeah, that'll like, oh, do it. Pull that over, plug you know, that in, job Problem
1: done. solving. Innovative thinking, Greg.
0: Cutting edge DNA imagery.
1: <laughs> also, it's pretty funny that the sample is, in fact, sperm.
0: <laughs> I didn't even think about that. <laughs> yes. It worked, though. And uh, Ray Gosling took a photo of the DNA. I've got it here. Here you go. Have a look.
1: Oh, wow. What do you see? It's beautiful. I mean, I wouldn't say I could tell that it's DNA. It's like a ring of blurry dots. Is what it looks like to me like concentric rings of blurry dots kind of
0: right well let's ask the expert
3: to explain the diffraction pattern that you get is actually rich in detail so you see there are nearly a hundred different spots on the diffraction pattern so it's a huge amount of information and if you've been trained in crystallography that's what you love to see
1: all right, so a lot of data. A novice such as myself, I have no idea how to interpret this. So, so what is this telling us?
0: This pattern matches what people had seen from various uh, protein crystals that they'd also done X-ray crystallography on. So they concluded that the DNA structure that they'd produced this uh, this pattern from was crystalline. Right, it had a it had a neat, ordered structure. But now they just got to figure out what that structure actually. Is.
1: Uh, so this is telling us, okay, there is a house, and now we need to figure out what the house looks like. And it's like. a
0: neat house. <laughs> it's a very neat it's house. It's a very neat, straight line house. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. But, like, what's it made of? Mm. Is it brick? Is it wood? And this is when Rosalind Franklin joins them uh, on January the 5th, 1951. She's 30. Maurice Wilkins' isn't there he's on holiday he's hiking in the Welsh mountains with his girlfriend when he returns he discovers that Rosalind has taken over the DNA diffraction work and taken over the guidance of Ray Goslin's thesis well done John Randall hadn't told him that so it was a bit of a shock to Morris and they don't start off on good terms
1: that's such a bummer for Rosalind though because it's not her fault like if she comes into the group and gets told okay do this job then when Morris comes back in a huff
2: like mm. wh- it's not <laughs> it's not on her mm,
0: yeah (laughs) And that friction with Morris... That's the least of her worries, though. Uh
2: Unlike her experience in France, the general atmosphere at King's was very misogynistic, and I think she found that very difficult to cope with. So so just as one example, she wasn't allowed to go into the common room. So if she wanted to have a cup of coffee or have lunch, she had to go into the women's common room where she was virtually the only scientist and all the other people were the secretaries and the people making the tea and the cleaners, which is fine. I mean, I'm sure she was quite happy to talk to them, but it meant that she was excluded Excluded from the conversation of the male scientists and anybody who's worked in a university or laboratory knows that a huge amount of discussion takes place in informal settings, such as over lunch or coffee or on the squash court or the changing rooms or the pub and all these places she was just completely excluded from.
1: Absolutely, that's so essential in terms of casual conversation with your colleagues where people are still working on stuff. Oh my gosh, that's so unfair.
0: A few months later, uh, we're in May 1951, we're going to move the story to Naples to a conference that's being attended by someone else whose name you will recognize. It's about time we met him in this story, James Watson, or Jim. Now, by all accounts, Jim was a child prodigy. He appeared on a television show called Quiz Kids. (laughs) Uh, And at the age of 10, he had an encyclopedic knowledge of ornithology. It's actually Jim who later writes and publishes The Double Helix, a personal account of the discovery of the structure of DNA, which is a book, as I'll get to later, that was very popular and one that cast Rosalind in a particular light.
2: Mm.
0: Here's Dr. Patricia Farrer on James Watson.
2: I once met somebody, a woman who knew him, And she said that he had a terrible reputation at college. And basically, he sort of moved down the corridor in the female dorm, moving from one woman to another. And she had a brief affair with him. And then after a bit, she was dropped and he moved on to the next one. So he had a very bad reputation amongst women while he was at university. It was quite clear from his book. I mean, it's how he describes himself as a very, very ambitious, pushy young man.
1: He describes himself that way? Come on, man. Mm. May
0: 1951, Naples. Morris Wilkins shows that photo of the crystalline DNA.
3: Jim Watson was sitting in the audience, and it was one of the things that made Jim Watson sit up and take notice that actually they were maybe within touching distance of being able to solve the structure of DNA. So he got very excited about that.
1: As he says, he's a very ambitious person. I'm sure he can smell uh, a good, opportunity. A good discovery mm. on the horizon.
3: Sure.
0: Let's bring Francis Crick into this story then. Let's. Now, that happens a couple of months later at another conference, one in Cambridge, that Morris and Rosalind travel up to. It's July 1951 now. I read Francis described as tall, fair, and very English. <laughs>
1: very English. <laughs> he has the look, the English look.
0: <laughs> and apparently a very explosive laugh that can pinpoint his location in any building. <laughs> oh, I
1: love people like that. I really do. When I you love know that. exactly where they are in a crowd. That's great. Interestingly,
0: Francis Crick had already met Morris Wilkins. Uh, a few years earlier, in the spring of 1947, Francis had come to King's about a job, but John Randall, the head of the department, said that Francis was "quote too boisterous and talked too much."
1: <gasps> too, oh, he's too social. He's t- too outgoing. <laughs> so
0: Francis ended up going to the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge. That's the other location alongside King's College London. That's key for this story. Okay. Uh, but I mentioned this backstory as Morris and Francis's friendship grew after their meeting uh, a few years earlier and that's going to grow through the story At this 1951 Cambridge meeting, Morris again presents that crystalline DNA photo. And like it had for Jim, it also inspires Francis to try to figure out its structure.
1: Okay, so everybody's on the hunt.
0: So Rosalind and Ray finally start photographing fibers of DNA, and they get the same pattern produced that Morris and Ray had got before.
1: Okay, so they're replicating it. And at this point, they do know that it's DNA. And it's called DNA, because we know that this is like, genetic material but we just don't know what its structure is
0: exactly okay what they do realize though is that when dna fibers are made wetter they get a different image here's professor stephen curry to tell us more
3: Rosalind Franklin's really key contributions to this whole story is that under her guidance they were much better at controlling the different levels of humidity in the experiment.
0: Essentially how wet the DNA fibres are,
3: yeah? When you get to about 92% humidity, you get this B form of DNA. The B form. So
0: Rosalind identifies two types. The slightly drier A form, which Ray first photographs a few years back. You've seen that one with the regular dots, you know, in that kind mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. crystalline shape they deduced. Um, but if you make the sample wetter, you get a B form and the X-ray scatter pattern photo for that looks different. Ooh. I'm not going to show you what this photo looks like just yet because they're a bit blurry and there's a special one I want to show you in the future, which okay. you might have figured out. So Morris Wilkins, he sees this photo of this b form right <laughs> the,
1: the moist version <laughs> yes uh,
0: and and morris heads up to spend a weekend in cambridge with the cricks because he's good mates with francis yeah and he also meets jim watson who has recently joined Francis Crick at the Cavendish Lab in Cambridge. Uh, Watson and Crick are working on the structures of proteins and, you know, they're interested in other people doing similar. So Linus Powling has been looking at the structure of amino acids. Linus Powling is a chemist. He later becomes one of only a bunch of people, four researchers, to receive two Nobel Prizes. Amazing. Um, one for figuring out the structure of chemical bonds and then it was the Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts against nuclear Jeez, testing. Always. So Linus has suggested that one structure that he's seen in amino acids is, is a helix. And the guys start chatting about it and they think, yeah, maybe DNA could also be a helix.
1: Wow.
0: I want to show you how to make a helix in midair. Okay. Take a finger, okay. uh, put it in front of your face, okay. pointing away from you. Okay, draw a circle mm-hmm. in the air in front of your face. Mm-hmm. Nice. Now push your finger away from, like extend your arm, push your finger like away from forward. your head okay. while still doing the circle. <laughs>
1: We don't look weird at all. (laughs) (laughs) That's a helix. Oh, cool. Yeah,
0: we just smashed a helix in midair. Nice, nice, nice. nice. So they agree that DNA could have this helix shape, but they don't agree on how many strands it would have. Mm. Is it going to have one? Is it going to have two? Is it maybe going to have three? They decide to have a go at making a model of it. So they use wood to represent the atoms and chemical bonds, and they've got copper wire to fill in the gaps, and they invite the King's team up because of the connection with Morris, and they know that they're working on the structure of DNA. Uh, So up they come to Cambridge, and here's Patricia on Rosalind's thoughts.
2: Within the first few minutes, she pointed out a quite elementary mistake. That they've made.
1: That's awesome. She comes up and she's like, um, actually, guys, uh <laughs>
0: <Nah>. <laughs> Because Rosalind's been thinking that DNA could be a helix as well. But she sees that Jim and Francis have twisted three backbones together and they've also stuck the bases out at the sides. Mm. So the bases are the chemicals that join the backbones together, right. like uh like the rungs between the verticals on a ladder, right? And Rosalind thinks the bases need to be on the inside, not the outside, and she tells them.
1: In no uncertain terms.
0: (laughs) Ray writes later in a letter that when they saw the model, uh, their relief was, quote, Palpable.
1: Okay. So they Ray and Rosalind are relieved that the cabinet's got it group, wrong. Right, right. They're like, oh my God, we still have time.
0: <laughs> and actually, it it gives the King's team a bit of a kick up the butt to crack on with their research.
1: Because they're like, okay, we need to really get a move on to figure this out.
0: Yeah. And Morris actually writes to his friend Francis, Francis Crick, to say, My dear Francis, the average vote of opinion here is that you should not continue to work on DNA in Cambridge.
1: In tri- Does that work? <laughs> Do I feel like that's a a very polite, very... Spoiler
0: alert, it doesn't work. They keep working on it.
1: (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) From our our point now, we could probably tell that. But it's like asking a very polite letter, could you please stop working on this thing? Because I need to be the one who discovers it.
0: (laughs) The problem is the King's team, meanwhile, has fallen apart. Oh no Morris and Rosalind Are simply avoiding no. Each other right That friction has Grown so strong What happens over The next year Is super important And I want to Give you as much Detail as I can Squeeze into this One episode I'm so ready But I also want to Get to this Lesser told story Of Rosalind Franklin Okay I've given you A taste of it with Cole but This is the story That I think we Should all be telling Right not this one About DNA But this one is Of course important too And it's what you Asked for So let's go um, I need May, the surprises Greg <laughs> May 1952 Ray and Rosalind and take a corker of an x-ray photo of the B form.
1: I love that you just said that. A corker of an x-ray photo. This is what this podcast has done to us, Greg. Was it a bit too British for you? No, it's just fantastic. I love that we're getting excited about this. This is oh. exactly what I, I hoped my life would be when I was younger. <laughs>
0: getting excited about an x-ray photo of the B form of DNA. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> standard. Um, it's one you might have heard of, actually. It's okay. called Photograph 51.
1: Oh. Yes. Yes. Here it is.
0: Have a look. You can see what they could kind of see before but not very clearly. What are you seeing? Oh, it's beautiful.
1: Yeah, it's definitely the classic image that I think of when I think of Rosalind Franklin's X-ray crystallography. It looks like an X and it's got these two lines of, again, kind of squiggly dots in an X formation around the center of a circle.
0: Nice. Um, here's Stephen's take on photograph 51.
3: The famous photograph 51 is a much more diffuse pattern, and there's much less information in there, but in a way it's much simpler. There are sort of black wedges at the top and the bottom of the pattern, which is a signature of the spacing between the bases and the DNA. And so it, it immediately tells you it's a helix.
0: I asked him how it immediately tells you it's a helix. It's definitely not something I <laughs> would have the- X, from this, right? yeah. <laughs> sure. uh, he said, well, they'd seen similar diffraction patterns from helical proteins.
1: Okay. So they
0: kind of gone, oh, we've seen Xs on helix-shaped proteins. So here's an X. There you go. Which is kind of what they were doing previously, right, when they all met up in Cambridge and they kind of saw that rough, sure, that sure, rough sure. shape.
1: Sure. But there's variety in what kind of helix it can be clearly because of this, the mistakes in this model.
0: Yeah, and they weren't able to tell what it was mm. from that image. And I should just say this is just Rosalind and Ray have taken this and only they've seen this so far. Got it. Um, and here's something I actually discovered researching this story.
3: I mean, there's an interesting sidearm to this story because there's a photograph which is almost as good as photograph 51 was taken by Bill Asprey's group in Leeds and it was taken nearly a full year earlier now it was in uh, the June 1951 and photograph 51 was taken in May 1952 I believe and yet the Leeds group didn't do anything with it and it didn't go on to help contribute to solving the problem.
2: The
1: drama! Right? I had no idea! I saw the
0: photo and it's a lovely neat x. Just like photograph 51, Mm. but no one acted on it.
1: Oh, man. And looking back now, we know I can't believe it. I can't believe they missed out on that. Wow. Yeah,
0: we will soon see how important photograph 51 is. Anyway, the key thing here is that James Watson got to see photograph 51. Now, it's not exactly clear how or where he saw it, but it looks like it happened in early February 1953, the month really where this whole DNA story reaches its climax. Exciting! Here's Patricia's take on the story.
2: James Watson went down to see Morris Wilkins and Morris Wilkins from a file on his desk or a drawer produced a photograph and James Watson immediately knew that this was a really really important photograph and he went racing back to Cambridge.
0: When Jim tells Francis about the X Francis realises that he's seen something similar before in horse haemoglobin uh, and that has a structure with two chains that run in opposite directions so then they go well DNA must be the same right?
1: It's all coming together.
3: There's a, a twofold symmetry within the pattern that certainly Crick um, immediately recognised meant that DNA had a double helix and that one strand was going up and the other strand was going down. So
0: the two of them set to work making a double helix.
1: But using Photograph 51 from the King's group.
0: Yeah, and here's the thing. That photo, that X, that isn't enough, right? To complete their model, they're going to need to get their hands on some measurements. Okay. And who has that data?
1: Rosalind Franklin and Ray Gosling in the King's Group.
0: Now, Jim later wrote in the Double Helix, he said, quote, Rosie, of course, did not directly give us the data. No, they got it from another scientist who had got hold of a copy of Rosalind's progress report uh, which included her calculations. No,
1: that is so underhanded and so sneaky and I hate that he calls her Rosie.
2: (laughs) That pisses me off.
0: More on that soon.
2: I don't think Rosalind Franklin ever realised that that had happened.
0: So, armed with that data and some
2: other recent research
0: on how bases bond together...
1: ...ill-begotten data.
0: ...they complete their model. Here it is. Have a look at this picture.
1: This is the one that is in every biology textbook ever in the history of ever. This is them, black and white, standing, looking geeky, if I may say so, (laughs) in front of a really, really cool metal model of what we now know as the double helical structure.
0: When you look closely at that model, um, it's amazing, actually. They've actually kind of written numbers, which I assume are the angles uh, on the metals there for the different chemicals. And they've kind of, you know, they've put all those different pieces of information together. So Jim and Francis, Watson and Crick, as we often call them, they invite Morris up to see the DNA model.
1: But just Morris. Mm, His reaction? pissed. He is
0: not happy. (laughs) I can
1: imagine. The
0: next day, Morris tells his colleagues back in Kings about the model. Ray is, quote, quite upset about being scooped.
1: Yeah, you would be. This is their data. I actually didn't know this part of the story, that they just literally stole data and decided to just have it.
0: So that's Ray. John is, quote, furious as a scalded cat. (laughs) Great description. What does Rosalind say? What do you think?
1: I mean, she's been quite straightforward and uh, she has spoken her mind so far Mm -hmm. in this story. So I can't imagine now is any different.
0: She says, quote, we all stand on the shoulders of others. Yeah, she reacts calmly.
1: Wow. Well, here's the thing. Like, from my perspective, I can imagine. I mean, this has been happening to her her whole career, probably. You know, she's been under-recognized and, you know, when she went to college, she was like, told that she couldn't get the same degree, I can imagine that she is more used to this than the other guys in this group. I'm not saying she wasn't mad, but I think she's probably had a little more practice having to take second place.
0: I'm going to explore this a little bit further because I think it's quite interesting. But back to the kind of timeline, a few weeks later, it's April 1953, and Rosalind goes up to Cambridge to inspect their model. And she agrees that the double helix must be right. Because as you'll see, very soon, they weren't necessarily sure if they were right. But ever. Anyway, 25th of April, 1953, big day. Three key papers on DNA are published in Nature, right? One is by... Morris Wilkins and two colleagues, Alex Stokes and Herbert Wilson, on the now correct molecular structure of DNA. The second is by Rosalind Franklin and Ray Gosling on the influence of water content on the structure of DNA fibers. Those okay, a so A and making, B, depending on the
1: Making that moist humidity. Version, yeah.
0: yeah. And the third paper is by Jim Watson and Francis Crick, titled Molecular Structure of Nucleic Acids A Structure for Deoxyribose Nucleic Acid. Exciting. Now the Crick and Watson paper is barely 900 words long.
1: Whoa. And it's accompanied
0: by a figure of the double helix drawn by Francis's wife. And it starts off modestly, saying, quote, We wish to suggest a structure for the DNA. This structure has novel features which are of considerable biological interest.
1: That's uh, quite an understatement. And also very polite.
0: <laughs> Classic language in those days, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, the thing to note here, though, is that Jim and Francis never took any x-ray photographs. Right? As I said, they weren't working on actual DNA.
1: And there's no x-ray photograph in that initial publication? Mm -hmm. Wow.
0: They saw that X photo and yes, there was a similar photo that had been, you know, around a year before it and they acquired Rosalind's data to get the angles, etc. So
1: did they give anybody else any credit in that paper?
0: In the last lines of the paper, they do give their acknowledgments to Kings and they say, quote, we have also been stimulated by a knowledge of the general nature of the unpublished experimental results and ideas of Dr. M.H.F. Wilkins, Dr. R.E. Franklin and their co-workers at King's College London. So there is there is that brief mention.
1: Yeah, fair enough. But I just don't feel like that's good enough. Like, they didn't do most of the work.
0: And a great question is, how close was Rosalind Franklin to figuring out the structure of DNA?
2: Mm-hmm. Most people think that in another couple of months' time, she would have come up with the answer. It was just that she was working in a different sort of way.
3: Franklin was a very thorough and precise scientist and liked to use lots of data and then really dig into the data and work at it.
2: I think they beat her to it because what they were looking for was an instant solution and they took all the shortcuts that they possibly could. Actually, when they published the paper, they weren't sure and they wanted to be there first and they were willing to take a gamble on it. She was behaving how scientists should and they were were just behaving like you know schoolboys who want us to get the gold star and be there first that is such a good way to put it
1: that's exactly what I was thinking is that Rosalind was doing literally what scientists have to do to be good scientists and then these guys are here like yeah I don't know slap a sketch on it this is probably what it looks like
0: <laughs> and that explains what you know why she went up there and she was like yeah they got it right
1: <sighs> she knew.
0: So Watson and Crick's paper gets a lot of interest uh, within the scientific community, but also in the public press. Jim even appears alongside film stars and famous singers in Vogue.
1: Really milking it for all it's worth. Which I think
0: encourages him to write The Double Helix, mm. to tell his, quote, uncompromisingly honest account. End quote.
1: Sure, it is. Jim. The book was
0: super popular, but it turns out it had a lasting impact on not just the way that he presented the process of science, but also on how Rosalind Franklin is remembered. And that's really what I want to come back to at the end of the podcast. And that's pretty much the story done, right? I mean, yes, of course, we need to mention the Nobel Prize, but that was the story that many of you listening asked us to tell. However, as I said at the start, it's not actually the Rosalind Franklin story we should be telling. There's- That comes from the next chapter of her life, a chapter rarely talked about, and that's coming up after the break. Welcome back to Surprisingly Brilliant and the story of Rosalind Franklin. Now, I knew some of her story before doing a good old deep dive to prep this episode, but I did not know this next chapter.
1: I'm so excited because I've been relatively familiar with the story so far, but I have literally no idea what you're about to tell me. Well, it
0: turns out this is exactly the problem. But well, we'll get to that. Right, later in 1953, Rosalind leaves King's for Birkbeck College, which is still in London, but what she describes as, quote, moving from a palace to the slums. Oh. But pleasanter all the same. As you think about that environment she's left. An
1: interpersonal work environment, maybe?
0: Yeah. Now she turns those amazing x-ray crystallography skills of hers onto something else. A virus that's destroying field after field of tobacco crops.
2: No way. It's called the tobacco mosaic virus because what it does is it leaves mottled patterns on the leaves. They go all green and yellow and black and blotchy.
0: Here's something I found amazingly coincidental about all this, right? Earlier I mentioned those three papers on DNA that were published in Nature on the 25th of April, 1953. Yeah. Okay. Well, there was also a paper on a virus that caused, quote, trashy leaf in tobacco plants, right? This very same TMV, tobacco mosaic virus, that Rosalind is now investigating. That's
1: just eerie. That is one of those. There's more. Wait, there's no. More,
0: what? right? This is bonkers. That same issue of nature also had a paper on carbon and blast furnaces, which links back to Rosalind's earlier research.
1: What? Uh, no. That's one of those ones that makes you believe in conspiracy theories. You're like, there's no way this
2: is just a coincidence.
0: Anyway, Birkbeck and TMV. <laughs>
1: so
2: creepy. She was such a skilled x-ray photographer, that she produced some wonderful, wonderful pictures of it. It's far more complex than DNA. So she really enjoyed the work. And she made a big model that at the time was criticized, but later been proved to be correct in every detail.
1: Like the actual structure of the virus itself. Mm. That's amazing. And x-ray crystallography for viruses is really hard.
0: Well, I want to know why it was... So important to know that structure Mm -hmm. of TMV here, Stephen.
3: The structure often informs function. And so if you know what something looks like, then that is an important first step into understanding how it might work. And, you know, with a virus, the things that you want to know are why does it infect tobacco and not wheat or trees or whatever. And I think it's probably fair to say that for many structural biologists, It's the structure itself that's enough to get them up in the morning and get them down to the lab because they just want to see something that nobody else has seen before. That was uh, one of the first times that a relatively detailed model of what a virus structure looked like had been solved.
1: And we don't remember Rosalind for this. Mm. I've never heard this story before and I'm a microbiologist.
0: Gosh, yeah. (laughs) What? She publishes 17 papers, mainly on the structure of TMV including four in Nature. And at one point, she even corrects James Watson's interpretation of TMV's helical structure. Yes, Jim Watson had also worked on TMV.
2: She looked at that, found he'd made several mistakes. She sorted those mistakes out. Good for her.
0: I read that actually, in this TMV period of her life, Rosalind, Jim, and Francis correspond. They exchange comments on each other's work on TMV and that she isn't bitter about them getting the structure of DNA before her. When she's nailed the structure of TMV, she then moves on to study other plant viruses that attack potatoes, turnips, tomatoes, peas.
1: I think a lot of people think like plant pathogens aren't that interesting, but they're so incredibly important economically. And <laughs> you're smiling at me. <laughs> (laughs) And of course, whenever
0: you get on a microbiology trip, it's just a pleasure to watch.
1: (laughs) So exciting. And of course, like people eat food. So, anyway, I just like to give a little shout out to the plant pathogens out there.
0: And then in 1957, now uh, she begins studying the virus that causes polio.
1: Oh my
2: gosh.
0: Polio, you know, massive problem at the time. And she's working with a guy called Aaron Klug on this,
2: who was her junior. When he joined Bernal's laboratory in Burtbeck he specifically asked to be on Rosalind Franklin's team. And he was working with her
3: on the poliovirus. What I've read is that they had trouble actually handling and mounting the poliovirus crystals in the little glass capillaries that they would use to hold the sample for the experiment. And the crystals would actually sometimes just dissolve uh, and I've had this um, problem myself because uh, I worked on poliovirus crystals myself uh, in the mid 90s, long after Rosalind Franklin.
1: That's amazing that you've spoken to someone who had the same problems as Rosalind Franklin. (laughs) That's so cool.
0: Pesky polio crystals. um, They were the least of her worries, though. In 1956, she returns from a trip to the US with terrible abdominal pain, and her belly swells up,
2: and she can't even do up her skirt anymore. So it was discovered that she had ovarian cancer.
1: So this has been a question of mine for forever. Was this at all related to any of her work that she's doing because she's around x-ray sources and we do know that x-rays in high doses or you know long exposure are carcinogenic i think
0: that's uh, a theory that a few people have Mm. um but i don't believe there's evidence or kind of a set idea either way i'm
1: sure we couldn't you know say causally for sure but it's interesting that it Mm. it could potentially have been related to her work that's interesting
0: Mm. that pain gets worse and worse um but throughout 1957 She's still turning up to work every day, despite apparently only being able to crawl up the stairs. No.
1: Oh, God, that's so painful to hear. She has three
0: operations. She has radiotherapy and chemotherapy, uh, but she gets worse.
2: Mm. Some of her relatives looked after her and also Francis Crick and his wife looked after her.
1: Francis. Oh, I love that he, you know, we were introduced to him as a really great gregarious, you know, social, boisterous man. And here he is sticking with Rosalind at the end of her life, still being a really good friend.
0: Sadly, on the 16th of April, 1958, she dies, which leaves us with the big question today, which is how is Rosalind Franklin remembered? I think there are two aspects to this. Firstly, how her work is formally recognised. Okay, I'm talking Nobel Prizes here. And secondly, how is she remembered as a person? What's the story that's told about her? And is that fair?
1: Definitely. I mean, I'm feeling very frustrated that she's gotten relegated in the annals of history that I've consumed so far in my life to being the person who missed out on the Nobel Prize and didn't get to DNA as fast as Watson and Crick did. You know, that's how I remember her. That's how she's been taught to me in my education.
0: So there was a reason I said Nobel Prizes Mm. earlier. Um, The super quick version of this is that uh, the 1962 Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine is awarded jointly to Francis Crick, James Watson and Maurice Wilkins for, Mm. and I'm quoting from the Nobel Prize website here, their discoveries concerning the molecular structure of nucleic acids and its significance for information transfer in living material. Many people say Rosalind Franklin missed out on this Nobel Prize. Okay, as, as you've said, that's that's the story you've heard. But sadly, she died, so she wasn't
2: eligible for it. You can't give a prize posthumously. The only conditions under which you can do that, if someone is awarded the prize that dies before they actually go to the prize ceremony, there's also a rule... I don't know when this rule came in, but only three people can win the Nobel Prize. So I imagine, I mean, in a way, putting Maurice Wilkins in was a rather insulting way of recognising her contribution. Perhaps they could have awarded it a bit earlier, especially when they knew that she was dying, which must have been common knowledge. I think perhaps they could have awarded it to her then. I think including Maurice Wilkins was actually a real insult
1: Interesting. So they basically say like, uh, Morris is close enough, like he'll he'll do as a stand-in because it doesn't really matter that we actually recognise Rosalind.
0: And Patricia, you know, fairly, I think, is like, it's even worse to include him as that third person. Totally. And the reason I said Nobel Prize is, is because her work on the polio virus also contributed to a second.
1: No freaking way. The
0: 1982 Nobel Prize in Chemistry awarded to Aaron Klug for, quote, His development of crystallographic electron microscopy, crikey, and his structural elucidation of biologically important nucleic acid protein complexes.
1: Yeah, that's not a mouthful at all. Dude, I cannot believe this. My rage has only grown. She did not only miss out on one incredibly important Nobel Prize, but two?
0: Okay, now hang on, hang on, hang on. Here's Stephen.
3: Some of the people that she worked with, like Aaron Klug and Don Casper, went on and carried on the work and went on to make very um, important contributions to understanding virus assembly, virus architecture. And so, you know, her legacy is very much part of that.
2: So that seems to me quite reasonable. And Aaron Klug has always, I believe, given her full acknowledgement. Francis Crick did, but James Watson did not.
0: So it sounds like our experts consider that, you know, she started the work on polio and the structure of that virus. And then, you know, Aaron Klug and his colleagues took that on and then were awarded the Nobel Prize for it.
1: And as we've said, like, she can't win it posthumously and they're giving her full credit. So this is much less of the same situation than she was in with the DNA Nobel Prize.
0: Maybe if she was still alive at mm-hmm. that point, she may have carried on working with him and then she might have been in the running for it. But yeah, that is the way of the Nobel Prizes. Finally, then, beyond the official accolades or lack of them, uh, what is the story that is told about her? Patricia really
2: nails this one. Her image, as presented by James Watson in that book, that made her an international figure of discussion. Yeah, the loudest
0: story that is told about Rosalind Franklin is the one told by James Watson in The Double Helix.
1: That's so frustrating. And as we know, he hasn't necessarily had the best attitude towards women so far in this story or in his life in general.
2: So for one thing, he called her Rosie, which wasn't her name. He presented her as being very sort of brusque and ill mannerly. He didn't really present her as a very competent scientist. And I think he definitely fell into that school of thought. You can either be a normal woman, or you can be a good scientist, but you can't possibly be both. That's incredibly frustrating.
1: And, you know, as I've found throughout researching both season one and season two, so many experts and so many historians have reflected on female scientists throughout the ages, especially, you know, not in this modern period that we find ourselves in as like very strong characters or really outspoken. And I just find myself smiling to myself all the time about that because it's like, yeah, they had to be. That's what you had to be able to stand up for yourself and you had to be loud. You had to to speak up for yourself in a situation where you were the only woman and you weren't going to get credit for what the work you were doing.
0: But I think that the way that he painted her was inaccurate. Absolutely. Um, and the way that he told her in his story, in his version, is what stuck. Mm. You know, how she was ill-natured and unapproachable even though we've heard that she loved hiking with friends and hosting dinner parties, how she lost the race to James Watson and Francis Crick uh, and had her photo and data, you know, used without her knowing. Although actually it seems like she was, you know, she was quite calm about that. You know, she didn't really necessarily consider that she was in a race.
1: I'm mad about it. That's not fair. I can't believe that James Watson's account of events is what I've been taught.
2: I mean, Rosalind Franklin is remembered because of Watson. I think that's sort of quite a reflection on how, we remember women. Even if you tell a story of her being unfairly discriminated against, you're still telling the story of a victim. You're not telling a success story. And the story should be rewritten to show her very positive achievements. It seems to be now that we should be presenting far more positive role models of women. I think instead of remembering her as a woman who was victimized and denigrated and downtrodden, instead we should be celebrating her for her own positive virtues.
1: Amazing, I love that sentiment. And that she went on to be incredibly successful and still innovate and still discover so many exciting things.
0: I wanna show you a photo of her tombstone in London's Wilsden Jewish Cemetery. Uh, Here it is, what does it say?
1: In memory of Rosalind Elise Franklin. Dearly loved elder daughter of Ellis and Muriel Franklin, scientist, her research and discoveries on viruses remain of lasting benefit to mankind. And I never knew, Greg. I had no idea.
0: I know. It's crazy, isn't it? Here's Patricia.
2: We should be telling the story about how she did the foundational work in the study of viruses, which this year is proving so immensely important. But to make her a victim of a man is to undermine her whole scientific reputation. And I'm, she would have absolutely loathed it. She wanted to be remembered as a scientist.
1: Ah, oh, I love that. So true. We have to reframe it. Yep. Reconstruct the narrative.
0: When you tell the story of Rosalind Franklin, tell the story of her pioneering work on the structure of viruses, not the structure of DNA. Yes, she was part of that story. And I wanted to share the most accurate version of that I could with you today. But that chapter of the story only covers what, two, maybe three years of her life.
3: I think her impact was huge. She was a, a scientist of you know fierce intelligence, somebody who was experimentally extraordinarily gifted
2: she was one of the leading virus experts in the whole world. She was a pioneer and that's crucially important and in a way far more important than DNA.
0: That is Rosalind Franklin's story and that's the story we should be telling.
1: I love that Greg. I love that we've uncovered this other narrative beneath the one that is so commonly told and the fact that we get to sort of set the record straight with this podcast episode makes me so happy. Thank you so much for telling this story Greg.
0: A pleasure. Absolute pleasure to research this and and put it together. (laughs) Which means it's time to say our thank yous and goodbyes. Today's experts were Dr. Patricia Farrer, Emeritus Fellow of Clare College, Cambridge. Uh, Patricia has a book coming out that sounds right up our street. It's called Life After Gravity, telling the story of Newton, money and slavery.
1: Oh my god, perfect.
0: I also chatted to Stephen Curry, Professor of Structural Biology at Imperial College London. Thank you both so much for your time and for your knowledge.
1: That sounds fascinating. And if you want any more information on our experts or the source that we use to put this podcast episode together you can find those in the show notes and if you enjoyed this podcast episode as much as i enjoyed listening to it then please do rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts
0: also please do spread the word about surprisingly brilliant to anyone that you think may enjoy this episode
1: or if you think it would be a good education for them to listen to it, you know? Hmm. We have a whole season of amazing podcast episodes on their way, so make sure you subscribe to us to catch them. And if you've got a story from science history that you'd like us to tell or a discovery or an invention or a person that you want to know the story behind, you can email us. where are brilliant at seeger.com.
0: And if you'd like to get in touch on social, uh, that there is Maren Hunsberger. She goes by at Maren Hunsberger on Twitter and at Maren B, B-E-A on Instagram.
1: I know it's confusing. I'm sorry. And there across the table from me is Greg Foot, who is helpfully at Greg Foote on both Twitter and Instagram.
0: Surprisingly Brilliant is a podcast from Seeker. This episode was written by me, Greg Foote. My co-host is Maren Hunsberger, and our producer was Katerina Kropshofer.
1: This episode was edited by Lucas Bollinger, and we had support from the team at Seeker, including Carolyn Roth, Jessica Young, Megan Bates, and Megan Fu. And from the Group 9 podcast team, including supervising producer Emily Feld.
0: The show's executive producers are me, Maren, Brian Pendergast, Brett Kushner, and Mangesh Hatgadur. And you can find out more about Seeker at seeker.com.
1: We'll chat to you next time. See ya.